0: The blissful American suburb ends up being, of course, the most dangerous place for the protagonists of these movies.
1: You're listening to Good is in the Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. And our episode today, third time guest of the pod, is Dr. Dahlia Schweitzer. And this time we are talking about her book. It's Haunted Homes, right, Rudy? It is Haunted Homes. Okay. Yes, not Haunted we Houses. Take...
2: In fact, she specifically discusses at the beginning of the book why it is not houses.
1: Yeah. So let's back out that she is we we love her. Um she was on before for season one talking about her book going viral, which was so much fun. It was about zombie flicks, viruses, and how those films reflect culture. And this time it's Haunted Homes. I don't know as much about the horror genre. Rudy, this is definitely more your thing, but I found her book so fascinating. I had not thought about some of the tropes in these films and the significance of them or why they work or what they are really reflecting about our culture. Loved, loved talking to her.
2: I did too, and yes, I am a horror nerd, and we get into that on this episode. And it's not just because I've won two best horror actor awards uh, mm-hmm. since, and then recently for my role in, in *Curtain Call*. But yeah, that was a shameless, horrible plug. Um, Perfect. What's lovely about this book is it actually addresses my love of horror. And my love of the study of suburban America, which I write a lot about in Forbes.com. A lot of my transportation article is my obsession with the the horror of, of the suburbs. And the reality is, that's what this book is about. It's about the horror of the suburbs.
1: Hey, you had said that you referenced her in one of your Forbes articles. I want to link that in the show notes. What was the title of the article? Do you remember?
2: I believe it was... The one, my most popular Forbes article, which is the five transportation impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, I think that's what it was because I I specifically referenced viruses.
1: Okay, that's going in the show notes. Something that I learned that... I didn't know that I didn't know. I didn't realize how much these films rely on gender stereotypes. And that to me was so fascinating because it was something that, oh my gosh. I mean, after reading about that, it seems so obvious now that it just completely went over my head. So for anybody who loves film, anybody who loves transportation, anybody who loves this genre and just, you know, thinking through stuff, this is a great episode. Okay. Let's talk Haunted Homes. Let's talk about haunted houses. Sure. <laughs> I said haunted houses or haunted mansions. I gave, I had the book and then I uh, handed I, it over to Rudy.
2: I think those are both wrong. It's haunted homes. Uh, yeah. That's really what it's talking it's about. It's haunted and,
0: homes. And I can actually, if you want, I can explain <laughs> why it's haunted homes and not haunted houses or haunted mansions or whatever.
2: Do it because I love your explanation in the book because, oh my God, what a difference between the two.
0: So My initial, the initial thought for the title, of course, was going to be Haunted Homes because that's like, sorry, Haunted Houses because that's like what the default is. But what I was really trying to get at was the idea of the home, the domestic space in which you feel safe and a house is just a building. Right? And what I was trying to get at is the space that is within. And so I do talk about mansions, but they are mansions that are homes. I briefly, briefly talk about The Shining, but only briefly because that's a hotel and not a home. That was sort of the significance with the title.
1: Well, Rudy knows far more about horror flicks than I do, but let me just throw out there that what you've done beautifully, what are you gonna say, Rudy? Uh,
2: That's true, however, (laughs) I am, I mean, I think this is gonna come out in this discussion, Dahlia is the master. I mean, in this book, what she dissects and what she references, Dahlia, I'm only, I'm just gonna assume that if you referenced a film in the book, you actually saw it?
0: I would,
1: Think that is a safe assumption?
2: Wow! You're, <laughs> gosh, you're impressive. Sorry, no. Please go on.
1: Oh well, I was going to say, just as with the um, the going viral book, that what you've done with this is just. A wonderful examination of American culture through these films. So, when I first started reading Haunted Homes, I was just blown away by this discussion about suburbia and the importance of getting a home. And it did, had not occurred to me how, how that worked its way into making these Haunted Home films work. It was a, this idea that owning a home is so important, it's the American dream, that even if it's crap, or even if somebody died there, it is worth it to have that over anything else, worth it to buy the home. And then that's how they find themselves in these haunted stories. There
0: are several aspects of that that I found really fascinating. And the initial impetus for the project, my, I mean, this it's the same, even if all my books are about different topics, they're all about the same methodology, which you kind of just nailed, which is this sort of fascination with American culture. And it's not that I believe that, you know, film is America centric. It's just that when I write, it is to understand the world around me. And I happen to live in America. And I, you know, as we've touched on in all the various podcasts that we've done, America's a really weird place. <laughs> um, and <laughs> there's a lot that doesn't make sense. And so the project started because I was watching, it was, I hadn't really been a horror buff before the 2016 election. And after the 2016 election, I desperately needed to distract myself. And so I started watching all these old horror movies that I'd been scared to watch, you know, when I was in high school. And I watched the, all the Friday the 13th movies and the Amityville movies and the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, you know, and they all take place in suburbia. The thing that, that struck me over and over again was the fact that this the blissful American suburb ends up being, of course, the most dangerous place for the protagonists of these movies. That got me thinking about the American suburbs. And saying American suburbs is redundant because the suburbs are an inherently American phenomenon. That on its own is is weird, right? And then just kind of thinking about the history of the suburbs and the fact that I think a lot of people assume that the suburbs evolved organically because so much of the way that towns developed was sort of organic. You know, it was like maybe there was a port, right? And then the workers came to live by the port and then obviously they built homes and then things evolved. But the suburbs were really this very carefully constructed phenomenon that was this sort of joint effort between the government and then sort of commerce and developers and all that. And I touch on something similar in Going Viral, where I talk about how it is, again, it's government. But in that case, it's Hollywood that's making money off these movies. But again, it's these weird, enormous bodies that we tend to think of as being disparate, coming together with some sort of shared agenda. And so the development of the suburbs was so carefully orchestrated and the the racism at the heart of it and just sort of like, okay, well, the white people are going to live here and we don't want the black people to go there. So let's put a highway in between. I mean, just the methodology was so fascinating and so disturbing and so it was like the more I dug into it the more interesting it got and the more it was like okay there's clearly a book
2: here. And it's a fantastic book. I don't know if you were, obs- it sounds like you were obsessed with just kind of America at being as weird as it is and you, and you went down a couple of rabbit holes down in that direction. It's funny when you were going down those rabbit holes probably saw another little rabbit around there because I too am obsessed with the development of the suburbs and I come at it from um, a transportation component. One of the instruments of commerce, as you kind of refer to what you just refer to right now, was Henry Ford's uh, Model T. That made automobiles much more affordable to the Americans. It democratized uh, right. mobility, if you will, it was the first democratization of mobility. And with a car, you can go farther away, right? That helped in the explosion of the suburbs. That coupled with World War II, the GI bills, uh, U.S. infrastructure developing and, and tons of money being Important. I too am also obsessed with the suburbs I, I and I write a lot about it in Forbes. A lot of my articles are about the explosion of the suburbs and, and you touched upon it in your book as well about well, how did the suburbs really start to expand in the 1970s? Well, you just keep driving until you can right. afford what you can buy and that's what a lot of millennials and Gen Z are, are going through right now. There's an explosion of these suburbs in the southeast. People are moving. The reason why there's a population explosion there is because everything's more affordable over there and so you just get in your car and you buy what you can what you can drive is basically what it comes down to drive until you can buy one thing i just want to touch upon it's so fascinating that you got into horror as like a therapeutic response to the 2016 election <laughs> I, I got into horror because of richard ramirez the night stalker oh, yeah. the night stalker was running around southern california when gwen and i were, were excuse you little,
1: excuse you we're little Excuse kids.
2: Uh, and, I wasn't and, born and, yet. And he was around. He was running around Orange County in L.A. and, and he was running around the suburbs. Right? He lived in this shady ass downtown motel, the Cecil Hotel, which you can go watch on Netflix. I
0: know the Cecil Hotel.
2: But he was going into the suburbs and murdering families. And I didn't sleep for an entire summer. The summer of 1985 was the worst summer of my life. I never felt so unsafe in my home. I never slept. I had so much PTSD that right after Richard Mares was caught, an older cousin was watching Friday the 13th, part five. And it was the first. First time I'd ever seen a horror film and lo and behold he was able to pause the horror film right he paused it I was in this sheer sense of terror like I was really freaked out watching this but once he paused it I calmed down that got me into horror. I started watching horror films because I could pause. I had some kind of control over the anxiety and then forget about it. E- ever since the third grade, I had started watching horror and have been obsessed with horror ever since. So yeah, I just wanted to kind of bring full circle about horror is actually therapeutic. They're, they're yeah. really, It really does address anxiety. I think that's why it's one of the most successful film genres in in the world. It really addresses things. So Gwen, mm-hmm. if you you're suffering from any issues in your life. I strongly suggest you get into horror flicks.
1: My my life is my life is issues. That's 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 <laughs> that's who that's what I am now. It's something that Dahlia also touched on that I hadn't really thought about in these horror films. We have to make sure we clarify horror because it kind of sounds like whore, and I just want to you're <laughs> I just want to make sure when we're like when we got into horror, horror. Okay. Anyway, just for the listeners, Rudy, you're like not. <laughs> yeah, okay.
2: I, uh, I I find that to be insulting to the genre. And okay, will, it, it just will, sounds ignore, a little like we like just facts. have to
1: enunciate horror. Okay. Anyway, something that I, is so obvious now. <laughs> that you pointed it out, but I didn't realize that these films were all white people. And just as your description of suburbia and you talk about the racism that was inherent in the structure of these homes, the idea of buying the home was specific to a class of Americans. And I was thinking about that because not too long ago when Buttigieg was talking about the infrastructure bill and all that, and he had mentioned racism in infrastructure and right-wing people were like, wait, how could a building be?" racist. And I'm thinking you just put a whites only sign on it and then you've got a racist building. It's not all that difficult to figure out. For anybody who's not understanding the inherent racism that had to do with the building of suburbia and then something that is actually reflected in why it's only white people in these films, could you expand on that? Absolutely.
0: It is fascinating, and I'll tell you also. When I was putting together the initial proposal for the book, I knew that I was I wanted to have a chapter about race, but I had no idea how hard it was going to be to find haunted home movies or TV shows with black people. Like I knew that there weren't going to be many, but I didn't realize that they virtually don't exist. Uh, I just had no idea. So first, I'll backpedal. So in terms of American history, I think again, and you kind of have to laugh now, but you know, when Obama was president and people were talking about how we live in this like post racist society and isn't it so great? And we don't have racism. And owning a home is the most reliable way to build equity, right? If you go back, and um, Rudy had talked briefly about the GI Bill, and the GI Bill was instrumental in shaping suburbia. And the idea was, is that these soldiers who were coming back from World War II, the American government wanted to acknowledge them for you know, having fought in the war. And so one of the things that they set up was this GI bill, the servicemen's bill, which allowed them to buy homes for cheap, to get these like very low interest mortgages, to get these homes for just several thousand dollars. And so these soldiers came over and they were able to buy these homes, which of course appreciated in value and, you know, really kind of helped build equity for these soldiers and their families. Now, Of course, asterisk, if you were Black, didn't matter if you'd fought or not, you didn't qualify. So first of all, forget it, you're not included. And then even if you were a Black family and say you had thousands of dollars in the bank, there would be these covenants that would say, see this nice house? You can't buy this house if you're Black or you can't buy this piece of land if you're black. And that was legal. Didn't matter how much money you had. And if, for instance, you wanted to get a mortgage, a bank could legally say you're black, we're not gonna give you a loan. So with a variety of different methods, they were kept out of buying a home. And then of course, you know, the prices went up and then they were priced out. And so this, just this huge chunk of equity was now inaccessible for these um, Hispanic families, black families, just just these huge chunks of people weren't allowed to buy homes. Redlining, which was literally, you know, where areas would be outlined in red and it was like, black people can't buy here that was legal into the 1970s. This isn't like, you know, this, is, this isn't some like outdated concept that was phased out in like, you know, the 1800s. I mean, this was legal, you know, a couple decades ago. Uh, and one of the things that I touch on in my book was this was a talking point in the last presidential election. You know, Trump is going on and on about how he's got to protect the suburbs. This is what he's talking about, right? He's saying, you know, we got to keep the suburbs white. There's this long history in America of wanting to keep the suburbs white, you know, this fear that if a Black family got into the suburbs, heaven forbid, that then it would cause all the values of the homes to then depreciate. And so it was like, we got to band together to keep them out. And I mean, just really, really toxic stuff. And then what's fascinating is then that somehow trickled down into Hollywood. And you can't find haunted home movies where a Black family buys a home you know there's no there's no black equivalent of the Amityville movies for instance and I found one I found one movie uh, where there was a black family that bought a house that turned out to be haunted and I spoke with the guy who was the lead actor and the producer of the film and he said you know they knew what they were doing and they were like okay we're gonna make this movie that's gonna be totally different from what's out there and they couldn't find distribution because of course nobody wants to take a risk on something that's completely different than what's out there. And I talk a little bit in my book about the Haunted Mansion, uh, and I talk about how if you go back and revisit it through this lens, it's so horrifically racist. All the ways in which it's different from a traditional Haunted Home narrative all speak to inherent systemic
1: racism. Wow. For our listeners, what are the tropes in the haunted home stories or in the haunted home films?
0: Um, So one of the things that, and you touched on this briefly in the beginning, one of the things that keeps happening over and over again is, you know, we have this, uh, the American dream of home ownership, right? This idea that in order to be a truly successful American, you have to own a home. And of course, you know, especially after, oh, and I talk about in my book how, you know, After the big economic crisis of 2008, with all the mortgage scandals and all that, where homes, you know, really became prohibitively expensive for many Americans, suddenly haunted home movies skyrocketed in popularity, right? So there is this real connection between, you know, what's happening off screen and what's happening on screen. But so what I talk about in the book is that you have, it's like over and over again, you have this family that's desperate to buy a home and they can't afford it. So they end up buying a home where a murder took place or a body was found or whatever. And that allows them to afford it because, of course, they're getting it for a steal, right? I mean, that's what happens in the Amityville movies. It's like, oh my God, honey, we can buy a house. And like, who cares if something happened? You know, like that's in the past, right? And so they buy the home, they put all their money into it, lo and behold, creepy things start to happen. It's inevitably the wife or the child that notices the creepy things first and then that plays into the whole trope of like, you know, the woman not being de- believed and the Cassandra complex and she's like, I swear the house is haunted and the husband's like, you know, have you taken your meds, honey? Um, you know, like, oh, you're just being hysterical. And then things keep intensifying, but they can't leave because they don't have any money and the 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 wife is always like, oh, I want to leave. And then the husband's like, you wanted to buy this house. We can't leave. We can't afford it. And then things intensify. And then either they get out in the nick of time or people die. And that's yeah. basically the movie.
1: <laughs> I did not realize. I mean, that's something that struck me was how much it relies on gender stereotypes. Because you wrote, there aren't any haunted home stories with same-sex relationships. So they are like two. Oh okay yeah but and she, I
2: didn't really she, she, she cited hard women. she sided the 2 actually and and uh and and which was funny in your book, Dahlia, you even said that the uh, in the one with the same-sex couple where, where the male was more feminine, he played the trope once again. They, like, they couldn't break away from the trope. Like they had to do that. It was just so silly. Sorry.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, it's so fascinating. I had never thought about how much it relies on a very old conception of gender roles, that the woman is crazy, emotional, not rational, must be seeing things, needs her meds. I mean, the fact that, that is true from the 1950s. I mean, wasn't that when women were over-prescribed tranquilizers? Yeah. And, um, And so how is it from the 1950s that that trope still exists decades later that the film relies so much on that? Well, what about Jordan Peele's films? Like, I'm wondering, what do you think? Is that offering something... I mean, isn't that partly what was so fascinating and so interesting about him is that he was offering another way to view, you know, like ghosts and haunted stories? Or what do you think?
0: I love Get Out. I think Get Out is just an extraordinary movie. And even though it's really not a haunted home narrative, I still include it in my book because it does have a lot in common, right? And, you know, one of the you know, the fundamental tropes of the book, which I mentioned was this idea of the domestic space as being the place of danger. Because we always think, oh, when you're at home, you're safe. And the scary stuff happens out in the world. You come home, you lock the door and you're safe. And so one of the things that's interesting in Get Out, of course, is that it's the domestic space that's the, you know, where all the the terrible things happen. And so, you know, there are some overlaps and that's why it's worthy of note. And so I do talk about Get Out in the, in the race chapter. So I think Jordan Peele is doing some interesting things. I didn't find Us to be that great a film. I know that people will disagree with me. I mean, I do think it's great that he's bringing more diversity into horror narratives. I think it would be fantastic if Shonda Rhimes decided she wanted to make a horror movie. I know that one of the things that I love about Shonda Rhimes is that she just has characters who happen to be black, right? They're not black characters. I think that would be really great. So just to clarify, you do have some black characters in these haunted home movies, you don't have black families, but the black character usually will be like the voodoo expert, still this sort of kind of offensively stereotypical thing where it's like the white family is gonna hire the weird voodoo expert to come in and give them insight as to what's going on in their home.
1: And now a quick break to tell you about an event from Cal Poly Pomona Philosophy Department. The California Center for Ethics and Policy, CCEP, promotes engaged and informed dialogue concerning ethics and policy challenges where California has the opportunity to exercise leadership. On March 18, 2022, from 12 p.m. to 1.30 p.m., CCEP will be hosting their third event in their four-part series on climate justice, titled Just Air, California Health, and the Ethics of Repair. Panelists will be discussing the history of air pollution and policies to address it. To register, visit ccep-air.eventbrite.com. That's ccep-air.eventbrite.com. I'll also link it in the show notes. Okay, and back to our show. one that I really, that comes to my mind, I think is Poltergeist. That's the only one that I think I'm really familiar with.
2: Do you, wait, but, do you mean Haunted Home or horror that's
1: movies? A, that's a, isn't that a Haunted Home film? Yeah, I talk about it in the book. Yeah.
0: Absolutely.
2: Yeah.
1: That's yeah, the, a, I mean, the it's a classic. One. It's a
2: Steven Spielberg. It is a classic. Okay, so I just know the classic.
1: classic.
2: I know, yeah. But there was some the...
1: humor in that too. Like, remember when the chairs were all like rearranged or something like that? I mean, I'm trying to remember the film. It's been so long. But wasn't there like an element of humor in that to kind of alleviate some of the scariness?
2: One of the characters in that film that was somewhat humorous was probably the seer, you know, the oh, the older, smaller woman. Oh, she, yeah. She was, she was a badass. But she yeah. but she was just this small stature, but she just kind of just took over. That was a pretty good of the comedic element. I remember the wife in that movie having some comedic moments and it was suburban bliss turned into suburban nightmare very quickly. What I found very interesting about that Dahlia was as you go into the conclusion in your book about how in films like Paranormal Activity as well as in the COVID lockdown with technology now being a part of the quote unquote home, I immediately thought back to Poltergeist. I was like, oh yeah, I mean, little girl trapped in the television, television having some things like, was that the first film to your knowledge that brought in the technology element into the, the haunted home narrative?
0: In terms of being trapped in the television, I don't know what the proper semantics would be, but that the Poltergeist movie actually ripped off a Twilight Zone episode. Yes,
2: oh, thank you for saying because I was... <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, the, I, so I think the Twilight Zone episode you know, had the, the idea of the, the girl, you know, that was sort of trapped and the Twilight Zone. And then there was another contemporary of the Twilight Zone called Outer Limits. Yep. And the Outer Limits was sort of all about how the TV set was this sort of like portal to another dimension. Yep. And, the, you know, and I talk about this in my history of American television class, where it's like, you know, nowadays we're so desensitized to it. But back then it was like, the TV is kind of a weird thing where you like turn it on and it like beams stuff into your house. It's interesting, like you hear it now with people freaking out about 5G, right? And sort of like the 5G technology is going to turn us all into monsters. And it's like, you know, similarly, it's like, okay, we're beaming these voices into our homes, into our living rooms. And it's like, there are these people in the TV set. And back then it was like, you know, you turn the television set off and you'd have like the ghosting, you know? And it was kind of like, what is that about? So you definitely had those kinds of themes in The Twilight Zone and Outer Limits. To the best of my knowledge, the Poltergeist movie was the first to sort of bring that into the sort of the movie sphere.
2: Yeah, and if you look into any of the history of the making of the Poltergeist, there's this whole other like you know w- was was the Poltergeist actually haunted because there was all these terrible things that like happened to the little girl and all like kinds an exorcist, of
0: stuff. like yeah. an
2: exorcist, and the making of the Twilight Zone movie itself was also like a horror show as well. Like in the making of some like a, a helicopter crash died and people died as a, as a result during the making of the Twilight Zone movie.
0: Oh, I didn't know
1: about that one. Yeah,
2: yeah it's, it's pretty out there. So, but 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 Gwen. Have, mm-hmm. is poltergeist literally the only horror film I you've knew ever I was going to
1: get picked on this for this it's the only thing i can think of but i think something wait, i want to go back to okay
2: wait oh, we got we got to talk about this Why? Oh, okay. what why Why are you are you scared
1: oh wait what was okay this is not a haunted home film but what was the the one in the the forest where it was like this ambiguous um like people could not tell if it was actually a documentary or if Blair it was project yeah. <laughs> that that I saw.
2: That's good. So that's two. So That's wh- like ancient history. <laughs> Which one of the OGs of the, you know, reality found footage. Yeah. Uh, what's yeah, your problem? I go for the classics.
1: I, that's the only, I mean, I don't think I ever finished
2: The Shining. She's she's dodging the question. Are, why you, won't you, watch, are you Why won't you watch I horror? I think films?
1: I am. And you know, so that's what, now that you're asking me this. <laughs> now we're talking. Now we're talking. There we go. That is something that I would like to revisit because both of you have talked about this as a relaxing experience. Oh, yeah. So how, how... Do you reconcile the level of anxiety that it gives you with a relaxing experience? And also, the other thing I want to ask maybe this would be specifically for Dahlia is that what do we get from these horror films besides entertainment? What does it do for us? Why are we still drawn to them? I am not unique in sort of theorizing about this. Like this has been written on a lot
0: and uh, if you go back, Robin Wood, who was like a an old school film theorist, has an article that's called Return of the Repressed and horror is sort of notorious for being, well first of all, so horror is all about literally the return of the repressed, right? So we have these anxieties, but we get to watch them play out on the screen where we are safe. So kind of like what Rudy was saying about you know the ability to press pause, the ability to see these things play out and they make us anxious, but at the same time, we still know that we're safe. So like I have generalized anxiety disorder. I can't escape my anxiety. It's there all the time. But when I watch a horror movie, I am distracted from it for those two hours. And yeah, maybe there's a little bit of like a nail biting, but I know that even if my protagonist dies, I'm still okay. Mm-hmm. So the reason I started watching these horror movies in 2016 was it was like a reality became a real life horror show from which I couldn't escape. I can't watch some Jennifer Aniston rom-com because all I can think about are little kids in cages on the border. But if I'm watching, you know, Hereditary or The Conjuring or whatever, that is going to encompass all of my brain, thus giving me a break from the real life anxiety into the more kind of controlled, cathartic anxiety where like, I know that nothing's really going to hurt me and it will turn off my brain temporarily.
2: Yeah, horror films can be like a drug in a way, right? Some There are some adrenaline junkies out there, you know, people who do such a, crazy thing like skiing dolly oh, yeah, I'm, I'm against skiing i'm trying to help <laughs> me i'm, too. Free, I'm totally failing it
0: that french you and
2: actor yeah it's crazy you the,
0: the, the french actor who just died he just so got killed it, in a skiing t- accident t-
2: t- terrible the whole thing is terrible like people who need to Tony bono like my brother-in-law who needs adrenaline stuff uh he's an adrenaline junkie you know he doesn't drink he doesn't do drugs but he's an adrenaline junkie horror can be like that It can be like it. The great thing about it is that you could press pause and it's relatively not going to injure you. You you might have a couple of nightmares. I have nightmares. But in general, you get a nice shot of adrenaline. You have some control. You get out of your own mind and you think, man, my problems are not that bad. There's (laughs) There's some haunted shit in that house, you know, or something along those lines or something like pretty crazy. And so, yeah, no, really. I mean, for me, it's therapeutic. And I already explained, I would not have been able to be somewhat of a normal person had I not discovered horror in the third grade as a result of Richard Ramirez terrorizing Southern California. I guarantee it. That's why I think the genre is really, really, really important. But if you need a shot of adrenaline, go watch a horror flick.
0: I talk in going viral about how zombie movies rise in popularity whenever bad stuff is happening in, re- in real life. So it's like when the AIDS crisis was peaking, zombie movie production was peaking. When the Vietnam War was happening, zombie movie production also skyrocketed. So you can see that every time there's you know an economic crisis or a military crisis, people love their zombie movies.
1: So I am thinking of another, was the one that Drew Barrymore did at the Dream. Yes. Okay. So I think I saw those. Do those count?
2: Those are, are brilliant. Are they too comedic? No no, 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 no. They count. They count. They count. Okay. They're, they're brilliant. So
0: that,
1: I remember I really enjoyed. I think one of the reasons why I enjoyed that was because by the end, it wasn't so the reveal wasn't. I don't know, kind of made all the anxiety dissipate. But I think some films where there is um, no clarity at the end that continue to haunt you, and I think that they're really brilliant in that way. Let's say if evil wins, right? You don't have that trope of the good guy figures it all out and problem is solved. The films that allow the bad guy to, or the ghost or whatever, to continue, like, well, no, if I say anything, I'm going to totally spoil all films. But those are the ones that freak me out. But the other movie I think I saw was the ring. Does oh that yeah, count?
2: that's oh yeah. Is that sort of a
1: Japanese the sc- was that originally a yeah. Japanese film? And yeah. then okay. The ring's yeah. one of the
2: scariest films that has come out in the last 20 years. I mean, it's hard yeah. to watch. It's very different.
0: And that's one, I mean, I talk about that in the conclusion mm-hmm. because that's where you've got again, you know, Heck. you've got the evil coming out of the TV.
1: Because this predominantly has white people, does this genre mainly appeal to a white audience or does it span all audiences?
0: So what's really sad is that Black people, I think because they're used to being so underrepresented, they go to white movies and black people watch white TV shows, but white audiences will not go to black movies or watch black TV shows. For the most part, black TV shows tend to be sort of segregated, you know, and they don't tend to have crossover appeal. I don't know if there's an article written about like, you know, how many white people will go watch like a title. Tyler Perry movie. But I'm guessing for the most part, that's the rule. So, yeah, Black people are a huge source of revenue for Hollywood, okay. even if the movies that they're going to go see are all white people.
2: Let's not forget, one of the greatest, most influential films of all time that launched many, many, many genres and many careers, the original Night of the Living Dead had a African American as its hero, Dwayne Jones. And that, you know, caused a lot of stir back in the day. But it I mean, that must have meant something, a lot of things to the African American community and the sheer success of that film must have as well. That was obviously a rarity. Very, very, very rare. But, you know, hats off to George Romero for doing that.
0: Well, so a couple things. One is, of course, we know what happened to that character at the end of the movie, and I think that
2: she hasn't seen it yet. I didn't want to to (laughs) give it away, but but yes,
0: I think the statute of limitations for a spoiler is a couple decades. (laughs) So I think I I, I think it's safe to say um, he doesn't do well. What's interesting about that movie is that when George Romero wrote the script, he didn't intend for that to be, you know, a black actor. Like that just happened to be the best. Actor for the role was this black actor. And then George Romero realized: you know, once the the black actor was cast, suddenly the film took on this like additional dimension of sort of racism in America. Like he knew it was going to be a commentary on the war in Vietnam, but then it took on this added level of American racism. And then you see there's sort of this like Southern militia who are going out to kill the zombies. And they're talking about the zombies in a way that, you know, many Southerners talked about Black people, you know, as sort of being less than human and how you got to kill them. And you see them hanging from the trees in a way that clearly um, references lynching. And so the movie has a lot going on in terms of a commentary about racism in the South.
2: So for the 20th time, Gwen. Will you please go watch that movie? It is for free. It is on. It's it's in the public domain. It fell into the public domain. You can actually just search it and find it anywhere for free. So you just got to watch the damn
1: You know, I think when this came up was when Dahlia was on to talk about going viral. Is that when? It's been been that long. It's been almost three years. (laughs) Literally almost three years. My one homework assignment. (laughs) (laughs) So what is the first haunted home film. What was the first um, one? You've got my book
0: there. Um, Rudy. Was it I The Old it right Dark here. House?
2: It, it was The the Cat and the Canary oh. is what you listed. Uh, it says, it may have been the first film to establish the look and feel of the haunted home. Other films, such as James Wales, aptly titled The Old Dark House, is considered the true true original. They're, so those two kind of listed in there. The, the Uninvited is kind of being like really taking it over and s- kind of setting up the you know the genre if you will.
1: Right. Let's see. When you see a trailer for let's say a new haunted home film, what do you what are your thoughts? Do you think, oh, this is the same old trope or what is something that has been done that has gone outside of the tropes that you thought was really interesting. What's a, a more recent film?
0: Um well one of my favorites is Hereditary. I think hereditary is really brilliant because it takes a lot of the tropes of the haunted home narrative and then it, it gives it a million twists and turns and it really exceeded my expectations.
1: I really think this topic is so fascinating because I know let's say in philosophy class when we go over the concept of mind body problems and one of the ways to get out of the heavy theory that my students have to read I reference film and I realized that a lot of films where you have people switching bodies or whatnot that Mm. the underlying presupposition is that the mind and the body are two separate things and wherever the mind goes, that's how you know who the person is. So in a way, the audience is already accepting that idea of this dualism of the mind and the body that's in the films. Otherwise, the films wouldn't work. And so that's why I was just so fascinated by, especially with the gender stuff, that I didn't realize that the underscoring assumption is we have to accept this notion of the woman's role in the home in order for this to work.
0: Another movie that I discovered during my research that uh, really blew my mind was the entity, which isn't which isn't uh, a new movie, but it's the one where the woman keeps getting raped by the ghost in her house she's disbelieved and she goes to the doctor and she's got bruising right and Mm -hmm. nobody believes her that she's getting raped and it's like it's the same kind of thing that you would see on an episode of law and order svu this week right this idea of like oh you can't be you know you must be wrong you're making it up and men controlling her i mean it's sort of it's really amazing there's some things that evolve right so like in going viral i talk about film cycles and how every five to 10 years, there's sort of going to be an update. And if you released Outbreak today, it would sort of be like, ah, eh, whatever, you know, it's like, we keep adding <laughs> twists to it. And, you know, even with zombie movies, Army of the Dead, the Zack Snyder one, where they go and they rob a bank, I thought is really interesting, because it's like, oh, we're taking a zombie movie, and we're doing something different. But with the LA Private Eyes book, and with this book, What really blew my mind was how much doesn't change and how we are just still making the same movie over and over again. I'm a sucker for haunted home movies. So it's like every time Netflix puts one out, I'm like, oh, gotta watch that. Get very excited. But it is, it's the same movie over and over again.
2: I broke a rule because of you. For about like 20 or third, about 20 years, ever since the last Paranormal Activity movie came out and I watched it in the theater, I said no more demon stuff because I couldn't sleep for like a week. And like my wife knows not to ask me anymore if we can watch anything having to do with demons or haunting or haunting houses because <laughs> that shit just scares the hell out of me. You know, like as much as aliens scare, scare me and the thinking about that, the whole demon thing really scares me. I blame Catholic school, okay? So <laughs> uh, I did... St- start watching the Netflix show you frequently refer to in the book The House on Haunting Hill, I think is what you said. It was. Oh,
0: the, like the miniseries?
2: I started watching the miniseries last okay. night and it's excellent and my wife loves it and she was impressed that I was able to sleep so well last night.
0: Now, I thought you were saying that horror movies are cathartic.
2: Uh-huh, wait, so, oh, wait. so, what's different is, about those? This is a subgenre, Okay, demons <laughs> and ghosts and shit, which, you know, may or may not exist, right? Really? Scare me. That stuff actually scares the hell out of me. A guy with a with a hockey mask or a serial killer or anything like that, which which are actually real, right? Those are actually out there. They don't scare me because those things, you know, I, in my brain, I'm like, ah, oh, I can I'll get a gun or I could fight back. I could be one of the lucky ones. But <laughs> demons and ghosts, how the hell do you fight demons and ghosts? So I personally tried to eliminate that genre from my watching mm-hmm. to reduce my anxiety about living every single day. Did, did, do I sound crazy uh, yet? No, or? no, no,
0: no, no. I just thought it was interesting how there you have this specific response to this specific subgenre. Um, have what? you seen *Hereditary*? Because that was, for the most part, these movies don't scare me. *Hereditary* i had to sleep with the light on no, no I, I i'm not
2: watching the hell no i'm not watching hereditary are you crazy that's a terrible way to sell the movie to me
0: uh it's terrifying it's terrifying
2: i'm not gonna watch hereditary
0: <laughs> well then yes you definitely should not watch it if if uh yeah i don't even know how to quantify what what is a demon but i i think there are demons in that movie
2: when you go to Catholic school, you, I mean, this stuff, I mean, it's great. Don't get me wrong. I may even send my kids to Catholic school someday. That's not, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But you do learn a lot about demons and ghosts and stuff and things that are watching you and you, and you better watch out or else X or you better watch out or else Y. Obviously in all exorcism related films, there's always a Catholic priest. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and as an altar boy, I think you can, you find the, if you go to the right section of of the behind the altar and find the right book that has the exorcism chapter in there. I mean, it's scary stuff. It really is. Like if you're going to be a real Catholic and a real believer, you have to just accept that there are evil demons and evil ghosts in the world that you have to do battle with. And a lot of that is like, okay, it's internal. That's the reference. But just saying, I mean, I don't know, Gwen, did you, were you afraid of that stuff or you were just not a believer?
1: No, I, I, (laughs) I, I'm not, but you know what I'm realizing, and this is, Tangential, or maybe just flat out off topic, I will read true crime stuff. And that's, that's real. Like there was, a, it was called The Stranger Beside Me or something like that. It was written by the woman who knew Ted Bundy, who was actually like friends and all that stuff. And I read that book and it's absolutely frightening what, you know, what he did. And I don't know why I would listen to true crime podcasts or read true crime and I have a I no idea. Okay. Yeah. Theory.
2: I think that some people that are not into the horror genre, but do are obsessed with true crime. Dolly, maybe you can, maybe you've heard the same thing. They say that they listen to that stuff in preparation, or they're actually preparing themselves if they ever get into that situation to like know what to do and what not to do.
1: I wouldn't be surprised if that's part of it. I think that when it comes to crime or whatnot, it's just that, or problem solving, I think that that's a human trait, but it's been mostly men who have been in the police force, detectives and all of that stuff. And so women being interested in this is in a different way, but it's just that idea of participating in this kind of problem solving and seeking out justice. Actually, we might be going right into Dahlia's other book on, what is it called? LA Detectives or what is it? (gasps) LA Private Eyes.
2: Okay, yeah, can uh, we can we
1: have you back on? Can we do that? Can we, you send yeah, me that of
2: book? <laughs> I, I have a copy of it. It's great. I'm a film noir junkie. I mean a real junkie of film noir. I mean, I've actually been on other podcasts out there discussing it. It would be lovely to have her on here and to talk about that awesome book. You're just such an awesome writer. I feel Thank are you, you writing for me? Is it just for me? Because I feel <laughs> like every, for you. Book, every book you release, yeah, it's so like good. this is for me. This she she, Which she is knows really what funny. I want.
0: I I think well we have the simpatico thing
2: we do I love um, it. as yeah.
1: soon as i started the book and i saw this stuff about finance because rudy is interested in finance and real estate i was like oh my god he's gonna love this and then when i got to the gender stuff i was wondering one of the classes i teach is current debates and sexuality and so i was thinking oh gosh i think that this chapter on gender roles in these horror films would be perfect for this class so yeah your your work is just um it's so thoughtful it's great for her I've, it's great for I, everybody
2: i quoted i linked to her her zombie book in one of my Forbes articles mm-hmm. uh this one's this one's definitely definitely Aww. getting into a Forbes article I may I may even have to just like write a review or something like this or something. I would I mean, love that it's definitely getting linked I mean it's just anybody is interested in the history of housing and the history of policy and, and how you you brought in horror genre <laughs> and, and haunted homes I mean it's brilliant you're a brilliant writer Uh, Oh,
0: that's so sweet of you guys. I know for me, one of the main things I try to emphasize in all my classes is the fact that, you know, what happens on screen plays a direct role in what happens off screen and vice versa. And I think, you know, you have people, you know, for the last hundred years who've been looking down their nose at popular culture and it's sort of, you know, beneath them, not worth our time, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, but if you want to understand X, You got to look at why and again, vice versa. And so I think that's why this is my field because I really am, you know, interested in understanding this weird America in which we live. And, you know, so it's like, if you want to understand why the horror movies are all
1: white, you got to look at the history of the suburbs. You can't separate one from the other.
2: Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant, Dahlia.
1: Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show again. And we look forward to having you on again (laughs) about <laughs> LA private eye that's what we're doing next time I'm so excited I'd be
0: delighted well
1: thank you and have a good day
0: thank you thanks to both of you it's always so nice talking to you guys and I hope this is we don't wait a couple years before the next conversation
2: no
1: absolutely. Uh, there, might,
2: there might be some crazy horror shit that happens between time we gotta we gotta we gotta talk we gotta talk more often and next yes, time, I'd I, I will have
1: watched what is the film but what's my home night
2: life? of the living dead <laughs>
1: There first,
2: you, you are not allowed. The first five minutes of uh, the detective thing is going to be your analysis of Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> okay, okay. okay, perfect.
1: All right. Have you seen
0: some of the detective? Oh, actually, well, you haven't read the book
1: yet, right? No, no, no. You I know need, what I
2: hasn't, She hasn't. Has you know, I talk about film. She doesn't listen to me. You think she listens? To me? She doesn't listen to anything well, that I say. Clearly
1: <laughs> not if she hasn't watched Night
0: of the Living Dead yet.
2: I know I'm like you know I'm one of those pe- people she dismisses oh pop culture oh nerd culture oh cool stuff that Rudy's into I'm not going to listen to any of that stuff no listen. I'm just
1: always I'm just always transfixed by your great hair so I don't I can't hear over your beautiful hair that's true, it's true. <laughs> and your lovely podcast voice I don't know <laughs> okay you do have you do have very good hair and a very good podcast voice
2: <laughs> thank you thank you very very much thank you and keep keep writing these books I swear you you're gonna have you're always gonna have the biggest fan out here that will always quote them and smack people over the head so sweet it's true
1: i really brilliant writer
0: (laughs) writing is always such a weird thing because it's like so solitary so it's nice when you're like you're connecting with someone who's actually like digesting it for sure
2: you and me i'm
0: telling
1: (laughs) you you see me me. I I i do Good Is In The Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dalski and Rudy Salo. To get more content and to support the show, visit our Patreon, patreon.com slash good is in the details. And don't forget to check out the show notes to learn more about Dahlia's work and about the CCEP event. If you have any questions about this episode or any comments, you can get in touch, good is in the details pod at gmail.com or we're on Instagram, good is in the details pod. Okay. Until next time. Bye.